Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We continue our journey through this incredible gospel of Mark. One of the ways that we evaluate great men sometimes is by looking at what those closest to them thought about him or think about him. The man's wife, his children, his close relatives, the people who knew him, who know him best, who have access to his private life. We think that's very significant. If they think highly of that man, if they esteem him, you get a glimpse into his private life that way. Ordinarily, that would be true. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, if you came to him at a certain point in his public ministry and you asked those questions, you might be shocked to find that those closest to him despised him. They thought little of him, did not believe in him. But the Scripture reveals that that is in no way a fault of Jesus or would in any way cast dispersion on him. And this text that we're going to study today gives us a glimpse into that. One of the reasons that we might give for why it was that his, his own relatives, people in his own house, people that watched him grow up did not believe in him. One of the answers that we might give is this old slogan or statement, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. What does that mean? Well, the more you know someone and you have daily access to their private life, their physical life, the more you may be tempted to despise them, to belittle them, think lowly of them. That's what despise means, not hate them, but you just think lowly of them. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, this tendency can cause trouble at many levels of human experience. It can happen in marriage. Little by little, spouses can lose their love for each other, their esteem for each other, when they live life together day after day, year after year. Children can lose respect for their parents in the same way. As they get older and they see their parents' feet of clay, the way they struggle with sin, some of their habits, their sin patterns, even, even their physical weaknesses. As they get older and they get sick and and uh, begin to fall apart physically. There may be some disdaining that creeps in. But while this tendency, familiarity breeds contempt, can be damaging in many human relationships, there is no case in which it is so dangerous as in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. In our account today that we're going to study, the people who watched Jesus grow up from boyhood into young manhood who knew his parents and his family, who watched him begin his trade as a carpenter, who never saw any open indications of supernatural greatness, were secretly despising him now that his public ministry was in full swing. The text says they took offense at him. That is, they stumbled over him. Especially his outrageous claim to be God in the flesh. And they could not believe in him because of this contempt. Now this very condition had been predicted six centuries before Jesus was even born by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 1 through 3, Isaiah wrote, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance 
that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah spoke of the fundamental challenge of believing the central message, the truth about Jesus of Nazareth, that he is God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. The problem Isaiah lifts up there is his outer appearance, the humble circumstances of his physical life. The fact that he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus growing up in Nazareth before the onlooking eyes of his neighbors was in the most ordinary way, like any other boy, physically. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So the outer appearance of Jesus, Isaiah said, is the problem. He looked like any other man. And that outer appearance kept them from seeing his true nature, his true glory as God. Thus did they despise and reject him. Now, the only possible remedy to this, Isaiah said, was faith. And before faith must come the sovereign work of revelation. Revelation. As Isaiah said right from the beginning, Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed our message? That's a matter of faith. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see the combination. Who has believed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord represents His true power, His saving power. It is hidden. The arm of the Lord is hidden, and it must be revealed. And if it is revealed, people may believe in it. That's the connection. So everything comes down then to this miracle of revelation. What is that? What is that? Well, we could go over to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, the apocalypse, the apocalypsis means the unveiling both the Greek word and the English word are connected to that concept of, a, of a, an unveiling, a pulling back of a veil. And the book of Revelation is that. It's an unveiling. But of what? Well, not only a revelation of the future, as most people think it to be. It is that. Not only a revelation of heaven and of all the worship that goes on there constantly. It is that. Not only a revelation of the destruction of Satan and his evil forces, it is that. Not only a revelation of judgment day and of the eternity beyond both hell and heaven, it is that. It is all of these, but is infinitely more than that. It is, as Revelation says right from the beginning, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it is, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. But the question is, why does Jesus Christ need to be unveiled? What hid him from our eyes? Well, was it not the humility of his lowly incarnation? Christmas time, we sing Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead 
see. Hail the incarnate deity. Kind of gets to it, doesn't it? Veiled in flesh. Only the eye of faith could pierce this veil and see the glory of God behind it. And that's what's in the text we're studying today. Christ's eternal glory veils. And it's veiled because of his incarnation. So how do we understand the incarnation? The greatest mystery of Christian theology, I think. How do we understand it? Well, we see the humility of Christ in his incarnation. We believe that he was pre-incarnate deity and chose to take on a human body. That humility is described beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the mystery of the incarnation. So he was truly God, robed in glory, constantly worshipped in heaven. The Old Testament gives us glimpses of the pre-incarnate Christ. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Ezekiel has a vision, I believe, of the pre-incarnate Christ seated on a throne of glory. Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. Above the expanse over their heads, the heads of the cherubim, was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. The glory of the pre-incarnate Christ, seated on a heavenly throne. Isaiah had the same vision, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, and with two wings they were covering their faces, and with two they were covering their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Apostle John in his gospel tells us Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and wrote about him. So, before Christ came to earth, he shared the Father's glory. He sat on the throne of the universe. He was the focus of perfect and continual heavenly worship. And he gave all of that up to come to earth, veiled in a robe of human clay. Veiled in flesh, the hidden glory of the incarnation. And this was the central stumbling block for the people of his day. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus makes this incredible assertion. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? We're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Claim to be God. A mere man claiming to be God. 
So he had a physical body, he had a face, he had eyes, hair, hands. He had a certain height, a tone of voice. He had a personality, a, a look, a physical look, a mere man. Uh, he had a normal development. He grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man, Luke 2.52. The mystery of his growth and development from infancy to boyhood to young manhood to full manhood just developed in the normal way. He had normal family relations. He had parents. We understand Joseph's special relationship because his true father was God, but he had a physical mother, human mother. He had extended family, mentioned in our text, relatives. Uh, He had brothers and sisters. Talk about that also in the text. Normal family relations. He had normal physical issues. He got hungry and needed to eat. He got thirsty and needed to drink. He got tired and needed to sleep like anybody else. He had normal range of human emotions, joy, astonishment, anger, grief. He had physical limitations. He could only be in one place at one time. He had to travel by walking like everyone else. And seeming frailty. As he traveled, he got tired. He sat down at that Samaritan well and rested, tired as he was. Most difficult of all, He could die. He could die. Not just any death, but the painful and shameful and humiliating death on the cross. Yet, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, ample evidence of his deity. If you knew what to look for, if if the arm of the Lord was being revealed to you, you could see it. And you could see it from growing up if you knew what to look for. Let's start with perfect sinlessness, sinlessness, never committed any sin. I find that unusual in a boy, girl too, but I'm, I'm, I'm not singling boys out. Please don't be offended. But imagine watching Jesus grow up and he never sinned ever. That's unusual. He's the only one that ever did it. He was constantly, perfectly filled with love for the Father and horizontal love for others. That's who he was. And he had an unusual, to put it mildly, knowledge of God's Word, which he displayed even at age 12. So a deep, thorough, rich knowledge of the Word of God. And then as the ministry developed then, he displayed supernatural knowledge of hidden things. He could read people's minds. He knew what they were thinking. He knew things that were happening in other geographical places beyond his location. He knew that somebody was healed without... Anyone, no messenger coming to tell him. Uh, He knew the future. He could predict things that were going to happen tomorrow or later that same day as he arranged the uh, physical, you know, made physical arrangements for the Passover feast. He's like, go into Jerusalem and you'll meet a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him. Now, that's interesting. He knew the future and he knew things that would happen at the end of time. And he had amazing power over every disease and sickness among the people, and over every demon, effortless power, and over nature, the ability to speak to the wind and the waves, and they instantly did what he said, the big catch of fish, making fish swim into a net. He had this kind of power. But more than anything, he fulfilled prophecies. Now Christ's glory was still there, but it was veiled. And once 
On the Mount of Transfiguration, he briefly pulled back the veil slightly to show a glimpse of his radiant glory, a bright, shining, radiant glory. Matthew 17, 2, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. But especially the glory was there if you knew what to look for in Christ's atoning death, a perfect revelation of the attributes of God, a perfect display of God's justice on display there in the bloody death of the only begotten Son of Jesus. And a perfect display of love also in the cross in that God killed His Son rather than us so that we could have eternal life. Now this is a glory that only the eye of faith can see. The unbeliever looking at Jesus dead on the cross, he's only the grotesque, twisted figure of a dead, bloody man. Gross. But the believer says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the king of glory died, you survey it and you see beauty and glory there as you see it nowhere else. Glory there. So, Jesus has this glory, but you could only see it by faith. Now, this dishonor that Jesus experienced here in the text is only temporary. He's going to get his glory back. He already has his glory back, but he's going to get more of it. We see this in three great requests that he made of his father. The first, give me my glory back. John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Do you realize how blasphemous that request would be if Jesus were not God? Give me that glory that you and I shared before the world began. He has it now. When he ascended into heaven, God had him sit at his right hand in glory. Second request, give me the nations that I may rule over them. Psalm 2. God said to me, this is Jesus speaking in the psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Give me the nations that I may be king. And so we know in Matthew 28, it says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's been given And so that is the glory of Jesus, to rule over all things. He has asked for the nations, and the Father's given him the nations. Now, the full display of his sovereign rule over planet Earth will not be obvious until the end of the world, but it will be obvious then. Every eye will see him, and they will mourn because of him. They will see him in his glory. He will come at the head of a a powerful heavenly army. Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a future full glory of Jesus, the King of the earth, ruling over all things. Now, Christ's authority over the nations is especially powerful now, daily, in his calling out from the nations his elect for conversion and for salvation. 
And he says in John 17 too, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. So this is Christ's third request. So give me my glory, give me the nations, and then give me my chosen ones that I may save them, that I may raise them up on that final day, that I may protect them every day of their lives from the world, the flesh, and the devil, from every assault on them. Give them to me, Father. Because I want them to see my glory in heaven. John 17, 24. Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you love me from before the creation of the world. Those three requests means Christ's dishonor in the text today is temporary. Because those three requests have been and will be answered, yes. Yes, my son, I will give you all of your heavenly glory back the glory we shared before the world began. And yes, my son, the nations belong to you now. You rule over them secretly for your own purposes, but in the end you will dash them to pieces like pottery with your rod of iron. And yes, my son, the elect will come to Christ, all of them, to be totally forgiven, totally saved, and will see Christ's full glory forever. So, God the Father is zealous to see his son glorified. Jesus laid down his glory temporarily, but the zeal of God Almighty is to see His Son exalted to the highest place. Now, this is a brief text we're looking at today, but we have to walk through it. We have to understand Christ's glory dishonored by their unbelief. His glory is dishonored by them. So He visits His hometown. Look at verse 1. Jesus left there and went to His hometown accompanied by His disciples. Now, in His Galilean phase of His ministry, His ministry base was Capernaum. Capernaum. That was His base. In Mark 6, however, he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, the place of his growing up years. And he immediately begins his ministry the way he always does. It does. The central part of his ministry is teaching. It's what he does. So look at verse 2. When Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. His priority was always his public ministry. Later in the same chapter, when Jesus tries to get away from the crowd after the death of John the Baptist, tries to get his, his apostles away so they can have a rest, goes to the other side of the lake and a huge crowd is waiting for him. But it says there in verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Top priority, teaching. The teaching ministry is Jesus' top priority. They were perishing in sin because they did not know the truth. Their greatest need was not their physical healing. Their greatest need was not their growling, empty bellies. He would address both of those needs. But their greatest need was the salvation of their souls through the ministry of the Word. Now, Jesus' teaching ministry was varied. He taught in fields. He taught in the streets. He taught at the temple. He was out in a boat. But he consistently also taught in the synagogues on the Sabbath. That's where the Jews would gather out in the precincts, out in the towns and villages. They would gather in the synagogue. It was a gathering place. And the Jews would come together on the Sabbath and they would read Scripture together. The center of synagogue worship was the reading of the Old Testament Scriptures and the explication thereof. Now, Jesus began his public ministry in Nazareth sometime before this. At the very beginning of his public ministry, after his baptism, after his temptation in the desert, he came to his hometown of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, he went in the synagogue. This is earlier, maybe a couple years before this, a year and a half maybe. 
at the appropriate time, he got up to read and comment on the Scriptures. He took the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. Unrolling it, he found the place, Isaiah 61, where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The Lord has anointed me. That's messianic. That's what the word means, anointed one. After reading that scripture, rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, sat down. Everyone's looking at him. And he said, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Wow. People were stunned. And they spoke graciously about him at that point, but then he went on and said something that really angered them. He said, you're going to reject me. You're going to hate me, but the Gentiles will welcome me. They didn't want to hear that. And so they took him by force to the top of a cliff and meant to push him off and kill him right there. But his time had not yet come and he moved right through the crowd and went on. That was his last time at Nazareth. Now he's back in his hometown. And this is the last time he will be there. And they were amazed but unconverted. And they asked asked questions, but they were not really seeking. Look at verse 2 and 3. When Sabbath came, he began to teach in their synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Two great evidences that God gave to his son to prove his deity were his mighty words and his mighty works. Mighty words, no one ever spoke like that man. His mighty works, no one could do the miracles that Jesus did. So they took offense at both, though they are amazed. They're amazed at Christ's supernatural wisdom. They're amazed at Christ's supernatural powers. But verse 2's amazement is actually a form of unbelief. Like, they can't believe it. And they ask a series of unbelieving questions. None of them seeking the truth. They've already reached their verdict. And all of these questions, six of them, are questions of origin. Like, where did it all come from? Trying to understand it. So, question one. Where did this man get these things? Then, what's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon here with us? And his sisters, aren't they here with us? Series of questions probing at the roots of Jesus' astonishing person and powers, but no faith. And the conclusion, they took offense at him. The Greek word here is scandalizo, like they were scandalized. They stumbled over this stumbling stone, which is the incarnation. Notice their shock at watching Jesus grow up from a boy with family surrounding him, a normal Jewish boy, if they were unwilling to look any closer. And by the way, that kind of proves the normalcy of Jesus' boyhood life, his life as a youth. It was pretty normal completely refutes the spurious pseudo-gospels that came a century or two after the real gospels. 
You've heard of some of them. National Enquirer probably wrote some of them about them. You know, Gospel of Thomas, Pseudo-Matthew. Hey, they're fun reading. Let me tell you something. Jesus' boyhood miracles. Wow. I bet you haven't heard this one. This is from Pseudo-Matthew. Ready? Jesus and the whole town knew that a lioness had given birth to her cubs in a nearby cave. Jesus went into the cave. Bad idea usually. But the lioness and all her cubs adored him. The cubs played with him. People had no idea what was happening inside the cave and were very sorrowful thinking Jesus had been killed by the lioness. But suddenly, out walks Jesus with the lioness and all the cubs. They're all together, walking out of the cave. The people did not come any closer. But then Jesus rebuked them and chastised them most sternly for not recognizing him, who he was, when the lions clearly did know who he was. Then Jesus and the lions crossed the Jordan River, which parted for them like the Red Sea. Jesus then dismissed the lions, telling them, go in peace. What do you guys think? That's pretty awesome. I bet you never heard that one. Never happened. Never happened. Jesus' first miracle was changing water into wine at Canaan Galilee. He didn't do any miracles as a boy. He had a normal, normal childhood. And then these family ties, we see this familiarity breeds contempt. We've already seen this in Mark chapter 3. I don't know if you remember that. Remember how Christ's own family did not believe in him and they went to take charge of him because they said he's out of his mind. Remember that? Mark 3.21. Well, that was true of his immediate family. How much more his neighbors did not believe in him. And by the way, this is strong evidence of Mary's other children. The Roman Catholic Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. But that's just not biblical. Clear evidence that Jesus had half-brothers. Joseph was their father, though not Jesus' father. And so these four brothers are listed, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and then at least two sisters, but Matthew actually says all his sisters. So there's a good number of sisters. So this refutes any doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity. We must put Scripture above tradition. And so Scripture asserts that Mary had a normal family life with Joseph. But the contempt's clear here, verse 3, they took offense at him. They rejected Jesus. And then Jesus makes this pronouncement in verse 4. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Christ is clearly stating here, your unbelief strips me of honor. In other places, I will have honor. I will have honor among the poor and needy sinners, the tax collectors and prostitutes who repent and turn to me. I will be honored among the Roman centurions who are humble and needy. I will be honored by the Samaritan woman and her village of Samaritans. I will be honored by the children of Jerusalem. I will be honored by the Gentiles in in Macedonia and Arabia and Libya and Rome and even to the ends of the earth and to the ends of time chosen before the foundation of the world to repent and believe. I will be honored by them. But in my hometown and even some of my own family, I am dishonored. Notice that the statement in verse 4 gets closer and closer to Jesus. Only in his hometown, closer, 
among his relatives, closer, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. In my own house. In my own house, I'm stripped of honor. Now, thank God. In time, his brothers would repent of their unbelief and come to faith in Christ. Thank God for that. And they'll be with Mary in the upper room in Acts 1, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And James will be a pillar in the church in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus. He will write the book of James. Jude as well. And they're spending eternity on their faces before Jesus in his heavenly glory. Not claiming any special privilege. Hey, remember when we were brothers. None of that. But it's only because God revealed Jesus to them and worked faith in them, curing them of their unbelief and their contempt. Well, the unbelief that he, fe- he found there in Nazareth resulted in few miracles. Verse 5 and 6. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now this is a clear statement of a link, a decisive link between faith and miracles. There is a link to the desperate woman that we saw two weeks ago, the woman with the bleeding problem. He said, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. And to Bartimaeus, he's going to say in Mark 10, go, your faith has healed you. And Bartimaeus followed him along the road. The connection here is strong. He could not do any miracles there except a few healings. He was restrained in some way by their lack of faith. Now, please don't misunderstand this. Easy to misunderstand here. Lack of faith does not stop Jesus from doing miracles. Jesus actually did many miracles to bless and benefit unbelievers. I would say most of his miracles blessed and benefited people who had no faith in Jesus. Think about the demoniac of the gatherings. That's easy. He didn't believe in Jesus and then was healed. He had no capacity for faith in Jesus. He was out of his mind. Jesus just healed him. The paralyzed man of John chapter 5 after the healing, turn Jesus into the religious police. Jesus circles back with the man and says, behold, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. There was no believer. That man didn't need to believe in Jesus to be healed. The feeding of the 5,000, we know from John chapter 6, most of them rejected Jesus the next day and would no longer follow him. They weren't believers. He fed them anyway. Jesus is not restrained like you have to believe or he can't do a miracle. There's no he can't do. (laughs) There is nothing too difficult for Jesus. It's not that. Conversely, we don't say strong faith guarantees miracles. Like the stronger your faith is, the more you can make God do a miracle. Like, I don't know, against his will or something like that? I don't want to do a miracle, but her faith was so strong I had no choice. That's just not how it works, dear friends. Faith is passive. It's like eyesight of the soul. It's like you're going to receive whatever God gives. You don't make God do things he doesn't want to do. That's not what it is. It's like the eyesight of the soul by which if there's available light in the room, you'll see it. So it is with the glory of God. If God wants to show his glory in a certain way, faith is the conduit by which he does it, but it doesn't force him. 
However, we know faith is the key attribute of the soul by which sinners like you and me are made right with God. It is by faith our sins are forgiven and no other way. And when it comes to this unbelief in Nazareth, Christ's hometown, he chose to shut down his healing ministry rather than lay miracle upon miracle on unbelieving people and so increase their judgment on judgment day, which it would have done. Chose to shut it down. Christ is free in the matter of miracles. He's not compelled. He does whatever he chooses. But here we see in the point of the text is a shocking dishonor of unbelief. Christ is adored and glorified in heaven. Mighty archangels hide their faces before him. But Christ is dishonored and rejected on earth. And the greatest honor is to disbelieve his claims. Finally, Christ's glory is unveiled by faith. The Apostle John says that Christ's flesh was no final hindrance to their view of his glory. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory. Glory of the only begotten who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Faith lives by the truth, by the word of God, not by sight. Faith receives revelation of truth about Christ from the word of God. Faith understands that no one else could speak the words that Christ did. Faith faith understands that no one else could do the miracles that Christ did. No one else could fulfill the prophecies that Christ did. Faith sees through the veil of, of his physical body to see the glory of deity. Faith sees glory where unbelief sees only shame. And I mean especially at the cross. His enemies stood there at the foot of the cross and said, if you're the son of God, Come down from the cross and we will believe in you. But since that day, Christ's faith-filled people from every nation have stood at the foot of the cross by faith, reading about it in the text, and have seen glory there, and have seen salvation there, and have trusted in that saving work for the forgiveness of their sins. Faith alone saves the soul. But prior to faith must come revelation. God has to reveal Jesus to you. Do you remember in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus was saying, who do people say Son of Man is? Various opinions. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember what Jesus said to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. No one can be saved unless God reveals Jesus to you. And this he does by the ministry of the word and by the secret working of the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. So as we walk through the gospel of Mark and you hear story after story after story about Jesus, you have every opportunity to see through the veil of the flesh and to understand the deity of Jesus, the Son of God. That's the theme of the whole gospel. And the Spirit has the power to save your soul. And by that power, He can make the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ shine in your heart, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He can just shine the light of His glory in the face of Christ. And by faith, you can see where we're heading with all this. See where we're heading. You're heading to a whole world, a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, radiant with the glory of God. And the city does not need the light of the sun or the light of the moon or the light of the lamp to shine out for the glory of God will give it light and the lamb 
will be its lamp. That's where we're heading. So applications. Applications. There are four ways that we humans dishonor Christ. First, by disbelieving his claim to be God in the flesh. Second, by disobeying his commands to take his yoke upon us and learn from him and submit to his kingly rule in every area of your life. Third, by delighting in his competitors, which are idols, by idols, by putting value on created things rather than Christ. And fourthly, by delaying his coming in not sharing the gospel, which has been entrusted to us to share. So, the call is to repent of those ways that we're dishonoring him. Believe his claim that he is God in the flesh. Believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you've already believed that and been believing it for some time, you ought to just stop and thank God that the Father revealed Jesus to you because you wouldn't believe any other way. You could look at this evidence forever, you would never believe. But trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Secondly, obey his commands in every area of your life. Find ways that you're disobeying and say, I want to submit to your kingly rule. I don't want to fight against you. I don't want to strip you of of your honor by disobeying you. And, And thirdly, Look at his competitors. What idols are there in your life that are drawing your affections away from Christ? Allow your love for Christ to drive out those idols. Smash them like those reforming kings and prophets always do. They go find those idols and they smash them to powder. And finally, it has been given to us in 2 Peter to look forward to the day of God and what? Speed it's coming. Let's not delay his coming by not telling people about Christ this week. Take some story from the Gospel of Mark that shows the greatness of Christ and share it with a non-Christian person this week. Say, what do you think about this story? See what they say. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to look at the dishonor that Jesus' family and neighbors and countrymen gave him by unbelief. To look at that dishonor and understand it. And then see that we would be the same if you had not revealed your son to us. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would please continue to reveal Jesus by the ministry of the word. Help us to see his greatness, his majesty, his glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.